Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning, Harvest. Faye, thank you for reading the scripture for us this morning. I want to continue on. It's not really a series, but uh, I think the issues of reconciliation and justice are so forefront in our minds these days that I want to continue to address it through the preaching, at least through this week. I can honestly say that in all my 52 years of life, this is the most divided I have ever seen our world and our nation. The lines that divide one group from another seem almost impassable at this point, to the degree that I can't realistically imagine anyone changing their views on anything. People seem to live in echo chambers where they reinforce their existing viewpoints over and over and grow more and more in contempt and disdain for anyone who holds opposing views. And this is a cultural context in which I hear the cries for reconciliation rising right now. I'm so grateful that the call for reconciliation and the call for justice are getting louder. I think they should be, and I welcome it very much. But when I see how hard it is, even for loved ones, for people who were once so close and have hurt each other, when I see how hard it is for them to reconcile, even if they are both Christ followers, it leaves me wondering honestly, is reconciliation between entire people groups even possible? Is reconciliation a real possibility in a broken world, or is it a pipe dream? I've been looking for hope, and I've been turning to Scripture trying to find answers, and I'm happy to report the good news is God's answer to that question is a resounding yes. Real reconciliation is possible, but we have to achieve it according to the way God describes it. Now, I know that um, it's easy for people to get triggered even by a simple word, and so uh, disclaimers have become more needed than ever. So let me just say this. I really believe that human efforts to work for reconciliation and justice are extremely important and worth pursuing. But as a follower of Jesus and a, a student of Scripture, I also believe with all my heart and affirm publicly that there are limitations to what we together with our best efforts can accomplish. There is still a work that we want to see happen, which only God through His supernatural power and His means can accomplish. And so today, I don't want to talk about human efforts to work for reconciliation, though those things are important. But I want to talk primarily about the Bible's description of what reconciliation is and how it happens. In fact, that's the title of the message is how reconciliation happens. I want to look at Ephesians 2 and focus in on a few verses and interact with a couple other scriptures. And I want, to, I want to begin with the observation that reconciliation begins with a new creation. Ephesians chapter 2 offers a snapshot of how reconciliation happens. And it says, at verses 1 through 10, that the first and most important reconciliation is a personal matter between people and God. And then verses 11 through 22 show us that reconciliation must move on from that personal matter to become a relational matter between us and other people. 
So, again, to summarize, reconciliation begins with a personal matter of people being reconciled to God and becoming a new creation, and then it moves on to people being reconciled to one another and becoming a new community. It is first a personal matter, and second, a relational matter. So the first and most important reconciliation that has to happen before any other reconciliation work can actually bear fruit is that we must be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is only necessary when one party has wronged the other and therefore um, created offense, broken the relationship, and built distance between people who should be close. So that's why reconciliation is needed at all. When we say that we must be reconciled to God, let's be clear on one thing. The party that has done the wrong is not God, but us. I've heard a lot of people talk about God as though he has somehow done something wrong and uh, has to apologize to us for something. If that's the view we have of God, we will not find hope in this world. God is perfect. He has declared himself to be, but I also believe he has proven himself to be. And when there is a need for reconciliation between us and God, it is because we have done wrong. There is not a sermon in the New Testament, really, that doesn't include a call for repentance. When you look at Acts 3.19, we have in one of the sermons of Peter a particularly clear example of this. Peter just simply says it. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Repentance is the first essential step towards reconciliation. And we can define repentance maybe in simple terms like this. It's admitting that you've sinned, it's asking for forgiveness, and it's committing to change. Repentance is the first and essential step towards reconciliation between us and God. And I think we'll see later it's also the first and important um, step in in reconciliation between people as well. Ephesians 2.8 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So what Paul is saying here, and this is a little bit before the passage we're going to focus on, uh, but he says that this repentance that we offer to God, this acknowledgement of our wrongdoing, the asking in humility for forgiveness, and a real uh, commitment to work towards change, that repentance is our only contribution to being reconciled with God. That and believing in faith that His forgiveness is valid. Those things are the only contribution we make. And what Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2.8 is the rest of the reconciliation process is God's gift to us. And this disproportionate nature um, of reconciliation is important for us when it comes time for us to reconcile with one another. Listen, when you have conflict, the person who commits the offense exercises power during the offending But when it comes to reconciliation, the power shifts to the offended party. Anybody, any, I I can just speak as a husband, any husband who's screwed up and 
done wrong against his wife knows that it doesn't matter how earnest or how grandiose the gesture of apology is, all the power lies in my wife to accept and, and, and approve that apology as sincere. The, the power was mine when I was doing what was wrong, but the power is hers to decide whether reconciliation will happen or not. So in reconciliation with God, we repent, but then we are now cast at the mercy of God, and it's entirely up to Him to decide whether He will accept our contribution and give us the gift. Second Corinthians 5.19 gives us this good news, that for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. So the great surprise, that pleasant surprise we find when we come in repentance before God, throwing ourselves at His mercy, and we've all been in that place with God and with other people. The great surprise we find is that God is willing not to count our sins against us. That is a really powerful phrase of Scripture, that God looks at what we have done clearly established as wrong. And he says, I see it, but I choose not to count it against you. And receiving this kind of grace, this kind of release, profoundly changes a human being. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Receiving this kind of grace and mercy from God to be reconciled to Him doesn't just change us. What Paul says is it recreates us. It makes us all over again. This is really at the heart of what conversion is. We talk about conversion, or at least we did in the old days. We don't really hear much about converting anymore. But conversion is really what happens when a person goes from being one thing to then becoming another thing. I once was blind, but now I see. That's the whole idea of conversion. And for Paul, this wasn't just theology. This was testimony. There was a time when he was on a dark-hearted mission trip to hunt down and imprison or kill Christians as part of this new upstart religious movement. He was the enemy of Christ, and on the road to this very trip, he encounters Jesus in the Spirit, and he's profoundly changed by the encounter. So for Paul, what he's saying is when you meet Christ in this way and you realize the full wrongness of what you're doing and who you are, and yet find at the same moment that God is willing not to count all of your darkness and sin against you, but to give you the free gift of reconciling you to himself, that profoundly reshapes us so that we are converted from one thing to another. Paul went from being the chief persecutor of the Christian movement to its chief champion and protector and teacher. That would be like the imperial wizard of the KKK becoming the president of Black Lives Matter. It was such a profound transformation at the root of who he was that people were skeptical for years whether it was real or not. This is the nature 
of the redeeming work of God is He doesn't just change our record, He changes us. And until that profound change happens at a personal level, we cannot meaningfully contribute in any way or participate in the societal reconciliation which God has planned for the world. And make no mistake, God does want to see reconciliation and unity among human beings. This is at the heart of His gospel agenda but it is carried forward primarily through His redeeming work and through the people who are themselves first reconciled to God. But then we need to move on to look at the reconciliation that happens in new community. This idea that reconciliation isn't just an individual matter, but it must go from that individual experience to something communal. Christ's saving work reconciles us to God, but then it results also in our being reconciled to each other. In that sense, in the new community sense of reconciliation, reconciliation is both a destructive and a constructive work. In other words, first something must be torn down, and then something must be built up. Look at verse 14 in the passage that Faye read for us earlier. It says, for he himself, referring to Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So the first glance at this um, new community, this communal aspect of reconciliation, is that it's a destructive work. Jesus first tears down something that separates us. These these barriers, these dividing wall of hostility that exist to keep one group of people separate and excluded from another group of people. It seems hardwired in human nature to draw dividing lines between us. We, we seem to have to know how to distinguish between who is us and who is they. That's terrible grammar, but I think you understand what I mean. Is We're so obsessed with knowing, are you us or are you them? Think about how instinctively your own mind works. Today I'm convinced that most people monitor and get triggered. They don't really listen to anything. The first thing they're trying to figure out is, do you agree with me or are you my adversary? That's why it's so fatiguing for me to be on social media these days. It's just a shouting match and there's no real dialogue anymore. In the New Testament times, the clearest distinction in Israel was between the Jews and the non-Jews, who are also known as Gentiles. And for the Jews, this dividing wall of hostility was, at one level, a literal wall. Uh, I want to I show you this picture. It's a diagram. I don't know if you can see it, but it shows an overview of the entire temple compound. And you see where uh, in the center is the temple complex itself. And you can see just around it a thin fringe that encircles that central complex. I'm going to show you a second picture, and this is a clearer view of what that barrier would have looked like. This was a dividing wall that literally existed between the temple court of the Gentiles and the inner temple. There were signs posted in Greek and Latin that read, listen to this, this talk about um, not seeker-friendly, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. 
Gentiles were allowed to enter the temple grounds, but there, were only, there was only so far that they could venture. And beyond that, that barrier, they could not pass. And if they did, temple guards would immediately come out and beat them to death. And the sign said, as a disclaimer, that was on you. You knew that you took your life in your own hands if you crossed that line. I don't know if you recall the picture, but that line, that, that wall was not very high. It was four and a half feet. A semi-athletic person could scale that wall easily. And in the wall were regular breaks, little passageways, so that though it was a wall, it was very, it was a physical wall, but you could get past it if you wanted to. And I think that's the nature of so many of the lines and the barriers and walls that we erect in our world to distinguish between us and them, to include us and to exclude them. They are not lines that are clearly impenetrable, like, but that, that line, that wall in the temple may as well have been 50 feet high. Because if you say to someone, if you cross this, you die, well, that might as well be the Great Wall of China. But the Jews didn't just have physical lines and signs to define where they belonged and where others did not. But they also had symbolic walls. Look at Ephesians 2. We'll look at especially um, 15a. It says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And how did he do this? He didn't just break down a physical wall, but he broke down the invisible other wall, the symbolic wall that stood behind the physical wall by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What does that mean? We've got to be clear on this. It doesn't mean that the law does not reflect something about the way God understands morality, but the way that the Jews received and practiced the law, they understood it to be like a giant hedge or fence of protection that distinguished them from the rest of the world. If the physical wall was a representation of where we live, the law was a representation of how we lived. We live differently than everyone else. We live by a different set of rules. And as a result, the Jews could very clearly distinguish who was Jewish from who was not Jewish by the way that they, they conducted their lives and the rules they followed. And they drew their identity and determined their nearness and acceptability to God based on those rules. And they looked down their noses at anyone who did not live according to their rules. And as a result... The Gentiles who they looked down on looked down back at them, and there was a lot of, of animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the days of Jesus. Whenever people are separated by dividing lines, you can guarantee that there will be plenty of hostility on both sides of that wall. That's just the nature of how human beings respond to division and separation. Jesus brought peace by tearing down the walls that divided people and putting them all on level ground. When you tear down the walls that distinguish people and separate them, it forces them to reevaluate and redefine who they are with respect to God and with respect to one another. When you take away that familiar scaffolding that tells you who you are versus another person, then you have to just look at yourself, well, who actually am I? And in that vulnerable state, Jesus says, you are all in the same boat. And I am the only way to be in with God. It is no longer based on where you get to walk in a physical temple compound. 
It has no longer to do with which rules you follow. The only dividing line that matters now in humanity is on which side of the decision about Jesus that you fall. Whether you submit to him and accept him as Savior and Lord, or you don't. That is the only dividing line between humanity that now matters after Jesus has come. In verse 18, it says, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now, if you read all of of Ephesians 2, you'll notice something interesting. Um, There is a lot of you language talking to the Gentiles. He's referring to Gentiles who who have become Christians or might be reading this. And he's saying, you once were like this, but now you're going to be like this. But in this verse, he suddenly shifts the first person. He says, we both, symbolizing that because of what Jesus has done, though we once saw each other as us and them, you and me, it's suddenly now we. We are all in the same boat. And here's the thing. Because of Jesus, it didn't matter now which side of the physical wall or the moral wall you stood on. Everyone was now outside the wall of God, and everyone had equal access to God through Him. Nothing levels the playing field of humanity like the free and equal access to God that is granted to every human being through Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says, And I'm going to read on through verse 16. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. What this tells us is that you can't just do the destructive work of reconciliation and tear down walls but there has to be a constructive work of building something new. Equal but separate is not good enough. We don't want to live in a world where people are now equally lost and equally have access, but then they're still living separately because that is not God's picture of humanity at all. True shalom, true peace as God sees it, is that people coexist in harmony with God, and as a result, they coexist in harmony with one another. He does not just want a world populated by individual and separated, distinct new creations, but he wants those new creations to come together as a new kind of humanity. In fact, some some of the early church fathers even referred to Christians as a new race, that before we were clearly marked at the core by who we were based on designators like race or gender or whatever else you want to say. But now in Christ, we have a new kind of humanity, a new race that is possible because we share a common experience in Christ. Jew and Gentile alike who come to God through Jesus Christ are formed into a single new humanity out of the two original groups. I'm reminded of the merge that happens on every season of Survivor, where people who are used to thinking of the other as an adversary suddenly find that they're lumped together onto the same team, and now they have to figure out what to do. That's what happens when people who once defined themselves as us versus you, us versus them, through a common experience of encountering Jesus and finding their salvation in Him, 
are formed together, despite all the differences that separated them in the past, into a new humanity. And the common bond that unites us is our shared salvation in Jesus Christ that reconciles us to God and therefore can now finally, truly reconcile us to one another. It's so important because in the reconciliation with God, we see the power of grace, the power to say, I cannot erase the past. And I've seen in hostility some of the horrors that people have done. I've been reading so much of the accounts of the horrors of humanity in the last week. I just want to unsee some of what I've seen. Human beings do horrible things to each other. And because we cannot erase the historical reality of those things, we don't have the capacity to just move on. We need supernatural experience and supernatural power to gain the capacity to actually reconcile with another person who's done some of those things. That is what is made possible when we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, is that first our own inexcusable offenses against God are dismissed and forgiven as a free gift. That experience profoundly reshapes us. And then we actually can think about what it means beyond receiving apology and restitution. How do I actually move on? How do I let this go? How do I reframe the way I relate to the person who has hurt me so badly? It is only when we experience that dynamic with God that we actually begin to know how to do that with other people. And that's not something we do primarily. That is something God does by the profound reshaping of us. He can form us into a new community, a new humanity, as whatever we used to be separate from one another is formed into a new thing called Christian. Now, the last time I checked, um, Harvest Community Church is not filled with Jew or Gentile. It's not a division that marks our world nearly as much as the, the way it marked the world of Jesus when he was on the earth. But when we look at Galatians three twenty-seven to 28, Paul clearly establishes that this principle of reconciliation, that God's reconciling us to himself, also then breaks all the barriers that divide humanity all the barriers. This legitimizes the extension of this principle to other walls as well. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's, that's like putting on a garment. And then he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul intentionally picks three of the dividing walls that most clearly demarcated one kind of human being from another in his time. And he says, while those things are undeniably uh, distinctive, male or female, slave or free, Greek or Jew, in his world, in the secular mindset, those are as distinct as you can get. And he says, but even so, as defining as those traits might be of who we once were, when you encounter Christ you are reshaped and recreated so that those things no longer define you. The thing that primarily defines you 
is that I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I used to be the enemy of God, and now I am his friend and his child. And I have the privilege of being his servant in this world. When we see that experience, it allows us to say, then I can now regard you no longer from a worldly point of view. Paul explicitly says that in 2 Corinthians 5. That that experience of being reshaped makes us see ourselves differently. And as a consequence, we see everyone differently through new eyes. So that no matter what differences once separated us, we are now able to be bound profoundly together by the oneness of our shared salvation in Jesus Christ. The people of God living in unity and harmony as the new community in Christ is the most compelling picture of reconciliation we can offer the world. That is not to say that we should not do other things, but let me tell you something. The great hope for a world crying out for reconciliation is to see the only people in the world who have divine power for real reconciliation actually live in reconciliation with our God and with one another and then by extension with the world around us. The world can achieve a certain measure of reconciliation, but there are limits to what the world united can accomplish. The great hope for true reconciliation exists within the body of Christ, at least according to Scripture, that it is in this new, strange, profoundly other humanity created within the body of Christ, a people so profoundly shaped by the newness of life they found in Jesus that we can no longer live by the old things that separated us. We are compelled to live driven by the love of Christ and a different way of looking at other human beings. That is the great hope for reconciliation to be seen and realized in this world. It's not only about the church going out into the world, it's about more of the world entering the church, not as a building, not as an organization, but through the profound way of being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. I think we should attend marches and we should write and speak and all of that. But it is as people are reconciled to God and become part of this new strange kind of humanity, this third group that is different from the two groups, the us and them. This weird we in Christ. It is then that real reconciliation can be seen on this earth to the depth that we all long for. So we have a choice to make. Our witness is so diminished when we fail to live in unity even within the church when the power of the gospel and the oneness of our shared salvation is not enough to heal the divisions between us, the world cannot see in us the power of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, which the gospel holds out. So it has to begin in our own household here, and we've got to get better at living in unity with one another 
applying the power of the gospel and the love of God to our own broken relationships. And then we need to work hard at rooting out the evil of a spirit of judgment and exclusion towards others and embracing more of God's heart of inclusion and invitation so that we all, being on equal footing, have access to God through Jesus Christ. To now no longer look at people through any other dividing line except the dividing line of where we stand with Jesus and the great, great love of God that he gave to us. If we live this way, we will be profoundly used to help bring reconciliation to our world. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that is our calling, to be God's ambassadors, to make his appeal to all humanity, to be reconciled with God, and then to be reconciled with one another. Let's sing a song together called How Great Is Your Love. It's a song that compels us to remember that it is not our love that will save the world, but God's love. And I love the line that says, We have been changed by the power of the cross. Let's sing that as our testimony, our great hope. We all want reconciliation. Let's turn to God and ask Him to bring it in the way that only He can. Let's sing and then I'll be back to give you a word of blessing and the benediction. Harvest, we live in a fractured world. People are more divided than ever. But Jesus Christ offers humanity a great hope. That one group does not have to move towards the other, but both groups can now move towards God. And as we do so, He will make us a new creation and He will form us into a new community this strange new humanity called the body of Christ. Let's remember again that the greatest and most important reconciliation is between people and God. And that reconciliation happens through our repentance and His great mercy and great gift of forgiveness. And as we learn from that experience, let us become ministers of reconciliation to a hurting and divided world. In the name of the Father, and the Spirit, and the Son, be blessed now and forever. Amen. I want to invite you at this time to join us for some breakout rooms. You received an email with a link to join the Adult Fellowship or breakout rooms after the service on Zoom. And I want to really encourage you in these weeks that we have remaining, and it could be still months yet to come, where we're doing online services. We need to commit ourselves to true fellowship and dialogue with each other. I know that Zoom is not our favorite thing, but I want to encourage you to make an extra intentional commitment to join us for these breakout rooms because our fellowship and our conversation in Christ does make a difference in us and in one another. So would you click that link and we'll see you on Zoom and we'll discuss together all kinds of things, but included in that conversation, I hope, will be some discussion on what it means to you that we are ministers of reconciliation in this world. God bless you. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, 
check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.